Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrej Matišák, and I work as the deputy head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda. The US-Russia bilateral meeting, NATO-Russia council meeting, and the OSCE talks. Can a flurry of diplomatic activities change something, or will Russia invade Ukraine? How much should we be concerned about the possibility of a bigger conflict between NATO and Russia? I talked to John Danny, research professor of Joint Interagency Intergovernmental and Multinational Security Studies at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute. Before joining the U.S. Army College, Dr. Danny worked for eight years as a political advisor for senior U.S. military commanders in Europe. He is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. This podcast was recorded on January 12th, and Dr. Danny's views do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. government. Listen to our conversation, how to approach negotiations with Putin-Russia. There is a real risk for a new armed conflict in Europe said the Secretary-General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, after the meeting of the NATO-Russia Council on January 12th. How much are you worried about the possibility that Russia will attack Ukraine? I am still worried about a Russian attack of Ukraine. I was more worried before the holiday break than I have been in recent days. And I'm a little less worried now, still concerned, but a little less worried because of Russia's willingness to engage in diplomacy. I think if the Russians were dead set on doing something, they would not be going through the diplomatic steps they've been going through. Don't you think this is just a cover for Kremlin? Moscow can start negotiations, then they will say, you are not listening to us, and Russia will attack. Yeah, it could be. It could be the case. But I think that their requests, their demands in the negotiations have been, at the outset, are so absurd so outrageous that they won't get credit in the eyes of the international community or even in the eyes of their own citizens for having tried. I think they'll come out as losers in the court of public opinion if they were to now, at the end of this week, say, oh, we had three meetings, didn't go well, we're going to launch the attack, right? I think there's got to be more before they can feel, before the, they would be perceived as justified. Now, like I said, though, I, I don't think an attack is necessarily likely at this point, mainly because the diplomacy continues to unfold and because I think it's been made clear to Putin that he will sustain serious costs if he attacks. We've told him in very clear terms, President Biden has told him what we are prepared to do in terms of economic sanctions. I think that matters. I know the Russians have a very large sovereign wealth fund. But I think this matters to Putin because he understands that the domestic economic situation is, of course, vitally important to his political standing. And I don't think he wants to throw that standing away. That said, he's obviously driven by a concern about Ukraine joining NATO. Why he is so concerned about that now is beyond me. I do not understand it because it seems to me nobody's discussing that right now. We've made very little movement in the alliance in recent years to pull Ukraine into membership. Nothing has changed. We haven't expanded the exercises we do with Ukraine. We haven't given them the membership action plan. So why? This is why I think a lot of it is for domestic posturing. 
In your opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal, you do argue that invading Ukraine would be a diplomatic, economic and military mistake for Putin. And you said that we can let him do it if he must do it. But isn't this too risky, especially for Ukraine? It's clearly very ris risky for Ukraine. But I think at this point, what is Ukraine's alternative? Does Ukraine want to negotiate away its future rights to join NATO or the EU? Does Ukraine want to negotiate away control over Donbass or the eastern half of its country? If the Ukrainians don't want to do that, then we certainly can't do it for them. It's incumbent upon Ukraine to make those decisions for itself. Uh, and yes, I think it is a risky position they are in. But at this point, the West can't necessarily solve this problem for Ukraine. Right? We believe in the West. Take Russia's signature on the 1975 Helsinki Final Act. Moscow believes this too, that countries should be able to determine what alliances they belong to. Now, that's not to say that NATO has to let them in or the EU has to allow them to become members. But if the Ukrainians want to pursue that, they may pursue it. So the Ukrainians have to decide whether they're going to pursue NATO membership or not. Not NATO. So despite the threats, at this stage, no concessions in the negotiations with Russia, right? Yeah, I, I'm, I think at this point, given what I've seen and heard, that uh, we are staying firm and that we should stay firm. This is a crisis generated by Moscow. It was Moscow that moved 100,000 troops to the border when there was no effort to pull Ukraine into NATO underway. There's nobody talking about that now. And yet Putin has decided to move all these forces to the border, creating a crisis, putting a gun to the head of the Ukrainians and to Europe and to us, and now demanding certain conditions. I don't see we have any requirement uh, to appease Putin at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. The current crisis is definitely a Putin's creation. But, and I don't want to sound alarmist, but let me push things a little bit further. When Stoltenberg said that there is a real risk of a new armed conflict in Europe, can we exclude Russian-NATO war, or perhaps not really? I think we can exclude it from NATO's perspective. And what I mean by that is, if Russia attacks Ukraine, I think the leadership in Washington and our European allies have been very clear, we're not going to respond with troops to push back the Russian advance. That's very, very unlikely. However, it's possible that Russia would, for some reason, attack not just Ukraine, but NATO allies around it. This is possible, but I think it is highly unlikely. It seems to me that if Putin is going to resort to military force in Ukraine, he will do everything he can to, to keep NATO from getting involved, knowing, as I'm sure he knows, that NATO is far more powerful than Russia is, and Russia would lose that war with NATO. So I'm not too worried about this conflict broadening, at least from Washington and NATO's perspective. We should be a bit concerned that it might broaden uh, at Russia's hands, but I think it's very unlikely. In general, how do you assess the negotiations that are taking place this week? We have seen some different setups, a bilateral between US and Russia, but also NATO-Russia Council, and at the end the OSCE was involved. Is it possible to say what have we learned about Russia's intentions and about how the US and allies are approaching those negotiations? I did read the transcript of the Deputy Secretary of State interview on Monday after her meeting with Ryabkov. And the sense that I had coming out of that was it was a very successful effort on the part of the United States to stand our ground, to convey to the Russians what we were willing to talk about and what we weren't willing to talk about, and to keep the door open. 
I was surprised to hear Ryabkov's reaction to all of that, very blustery kinds of things, threatening things. But he also kept the door open for diplomacy, more negotiation. That signaled to me that Moscow is not yet willing to simply dismiss negotiations. The final decision is obviously Putin's. And Ryabkov did a good job leaving Putin lots of maneuver space for a decision. But the fact that Ryabkov did not simply put up the hand when we said we weren't going to talk about keeping Ukraine out of NATO, that was a good sign to me indicates to me that this is about domestic politics in Russia and posturing. And um, yeah, so I thought that was a, it was a very good day for American diplomacy, for Western diplomacy. I was very glad to see the Deputy Secretary of State, who led our discussions on Monday, also led our delegation in NATO for a consistent line that was great to see. There's no daylight between the senior level of the administration and the approach of NATO. That was great to see. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading about how many other allies said much the same to the Russians. NATO clearly signals to Moscow that the Kremlin cannot have a say about the future of the alliance, which is one of those, we can say, absurd demands Russia has. On the other hand, we could, and I would argue that we also should talk about arms control and more broadly about risk reduction, especially in Europe. Would an attempt to decouple Russia's demands be a move forward? Or perhaps Moscow would never agree with this anyway, so no need to bother? I think it's a tactical error on the part of Moscow to raise the issue of exercises and missiles. And here's why. Moscow is clearly in the wrong when it comes to both of these issues. If we want to talk about missiles, I think uh, the United States would be very happy to talk about missiles, especially those Russian missiles in Kaliningrad, both the Iskander missile and the SSC-8, the missiles that violate the terms of the former INF Treaty. Sure, let's discuss those. I would welcome that. And I think, I think the United States would welcome the chance to discuss how we can uh, maybe resurrect parts of the former INF Treaty, including intrusive on-site inspections in Kaliningrad. The same applies with exercise. It's not the Americans in NATO who have given up on the Vienna documents and notifying the Russians about our exercises and inviting their observers. It's the Russians. It's the Russians who disaggregate uh, an exercise of 80,000 troops into many exercises of 13,000 troops so they don't hit the threshold for reporting and requiring observers. So, yeah, I, I would welcome that. I think that would be a great topic of conversation, limiting the scope of exercises and reducing how aggressive they appear and changing their locations, because it's the Russians who have been the source of those problems over the last eight years. And so for this reason, as I say, I think that uh, Moscow has made a misstep tactically in suggesting that this should be part of the negotiation. Should we now really insist on discussing those issues or how should we approach it? Yeah, I think it's a great way to pivot the negotiations away from whatever Moscow thinks about Ukraine and NATO and focus on these other topics instead to try to encourage Moscow to return to the fold, so to speak, to return to being in compliance with the CFE treaty, with the Vienna document, with some elements of the former INF treaty. I think that's exactly what we should do. Talking about the negotiation tactics, should the US, NATO, the West articulate their own demands? Like that Russia should leave the territory of Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine, and we could probably go on we could definitely table more demands. Should we try this way? I don't think making demands is very helpful in public. I think that those topics ought to be discussed in the negotiations if we're talking about security in Eastern Europe and the destabilizing role Russian occupiers play in that. So yes, I, I think they should be topics that are discussed, not demanded, but discussed.
Russia's demands are related to the endless complaints of Moscow that after the Cold War, it was promised that there will be no NATO enlargement to the East. Of course, no such written promise was made by the West, but some observers say that it's not such a big surprise that Russia was under the impression that the alliance won't expand further. But as Moscow is misusing this situation, does it make any sense to talk to the Kremlin about this? In the end, the fact is that joining NATO was the decision of democratic countries and their elected leaders. Yeah, I think it's an unproductive debate right now. Certainly, the Russians were told that at one point in the late 1980s that NATO would not be expanding without their approval, but this was in reference to Germany. And eventually, the Russians did agree to allow unified Germany within NATO, with the caveat that NATO infrastructure not land in East Germany. And of course, there's no NATO infrastructure in East Germany today. There are no American military facilities in East, the former East Germany. We've maintained that commitment. With regard to NATO enlargement to include Poland, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, etc., the Clinton administration made very clear that we have the, uh, the declassified memos now to prove it. We made very clear to Boris Yeltsin and to his government that we were going to expand the alliance to include countries, including those that I mentioned, uh, but that we would do it in a way that took Russia's concerns and security into consideration. So, for example, we didn't uh, enlarge the alliance until after the 1996 presidential elections in Russia. Uh, when we did enlarge the alliance, we created the NATO-Russia Council, or its predecessor organization. So we've allowed Russia a seat at the table in discussions with NATO. And at every step of the process, we've been transparent and clear and avoided surprises with the Russians. I, I don't think we're going to gain anything from that discussion. I think what's lost in that conversation, what's ignored, are the promises and the commitments that Russia made to Ukraine. Let's remember the 1994 Budapest Memorandum signed by the Russians, indicating they would not violate Ukraine's territorial sovereignty and that they would defend Ukraine, as a matter of fact, and its sovereignty. And the Russians have clearly violated that. So if we want to talk, and, and that was an agreement they've signed. So if we want to talk about who has violated their word, I think we should start with that. Yes, no doubt. That should be definitely mentioned. And maybe also the fact that the whole enlargement was, first of all, driven by the demands from the Central and Eastern European countries and by their leaders who, and again, I want to emphasize this, were democratically elected. And I'm old enough to remember that the NATO enlargement had a lot of Western critics. It wasn't such a clear-cut process as it is sometimes described. No, in fact, Bill Clinton entered office opposing NATO enlargement. It was only in, what, late 1993 after he met with the leaders of Poland and Hungary and the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and they explained to him the historical, the cultural, the political imperative of joining the West, that he changed his view. And yeah, it's not as if NATO went out looking for countries to invite in. That never happened. Really, it's a response to the, the region, the history of the region, and the people of the region for more security, not to be left in this no man's land between Germany and Russia. True. I think it's safe to say that majority of the countries in the Central and Eastern Europe don't want to be sandwiched between Germany and Russia without any security guarantees. Of course, Germany is an ally now, but we have some historical experiences. But let's come back to what's going on now. At this moment, on the American side, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, or the Silver Fox, as she is called by the media, is the central figure of the negotiations. What does she bring to the room? 
Oh, I think she brings to the role a, an immense amount of experience in high stakes negotiation. You may know she helped to negotiate the JCPOA, the agreement with Iran, which had her negotiating not merely with the Iranians, but trying to keep the Russians, the Chinese, the European allies all on the same page. Very, very difficult to negotiate in that kind of an environment. She also has immense experience dealing with Ryabkov himself and with Russians. So I sense that she really is the best person to have in this job right now. She has the experience and the knowledge and the competence, I think, of the Secretary of State and the President in doing what she's doing. I think she's doing a great job so far. And it's interesting that we are talking here about the Deputy Secretary of State. And I would argue that at least for now, it's good to keep the negotiations on this level I don't think we need to rise it immediately to the level of foreign ministers or even presidents. How do you see this? No, totally agree. It would be a mistake for this to occur at the presidential level. Anytime we give Putin a platform or uh, put him on the same stage with our president or, uh, or the German chancellor or the French president, that strengthens Putin's soft power at home and abroad. We should be doing everything we can to not strengthen it, but weaken it. And so that means allowing all these negotiations to play out at levels well below uh, the presidential level. So I'm glad to see it's at Wendy Sherman's level. I do not think it should be any higher. John, one final question. Do you think that we will see more rounds of negotiations? Yeah, I, I think we will. You know, we'll see at the end of this week and as uh, Moscow reacts, Putin reacts specifically to what has played out at NATO and to the OSCE. But I, my gut instinct is that, yes, there'll be additional rounds of negotiations. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and all the other platforms. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.